is our American stories. And from time to time, Jesse, well, he comes up with an idea. Sometimes it's crazy. Sometimes it's not. It's always interesting. And often it's about music. And sometimes it's about random thoughts in the shower. And this one comes straight from the kitchen. It's a cooking segment. And Jesse has a plate that will almost literally, it sounds like it, melt your socks off if you're not careful. Take it away, Jesse. If you like extremely spicy and almost burnt food like I do, you're in for a treat. While this recipe won't exactly melt a hole in your esophagus, it's going to burn all the way down. Also, you might want to send your kids outside for this one because the aroma will burn their lungs just a little bit. This is my dish. I call it Blackened Chicken Lives Matter. Here's what you're going to need. One pre-roasted chicken breast, half a white onion, three to five garlic cloves, pre-sliced jalapenos in a can or a jar, one pepper and seasoning pepper, sriracha sauce, slap your mama Cajun seasoning, salt, and fresh ground pepper. And if you're into culinary sadomasochism, add one habanero pepper. Now, heat up your pan on the stove to near high and add enough olive oil to cover about half the pan. Uh, While that's heating up, peel and slice half a white onion into half circles. Peel and slice three to five garlic cloves and place all that into your pan. You're going to want to add about 10 to 20 of your canned jalapeno slices and throw in your pepper and sini pepper. If you really want to bring on the pain, add that one sliced habanero pepper. Now let this all cook down in the pan on near high for about 5 to 10 minutes while stirring. You want to let those onions go limp and begin to brown on the edges there a little bit. Now take your pre-roasted chicken breast and you're going to want to shred that up with a fork. Once your chicken is shredded, your onions are turning brown, add the chicken to the pan and smother it with a good amount of sriracha. Throw in a large tablespoon of Slap Your Mama Cajun seasoning or something similar. Two teaspoons of salt and add about a half tablespoon of fresh ground pepper. Now stir all this up and make sure the pan is on high. You want to make sure the edges of this chicken are crispy by burning it just a little bit. If you don't like the flavor of a little char on your plate, uh, this dish probably isn't for you, but it's too late now, huh? If you're doing it right, you and anyone near the kitchen in your house should start coughing right about now. Someone just released a can of pepper spray. Keep going. It is supposed to hurt. Now only stir this about once every 90 seconds or so, so the chicken has time to burn a little bit. Once the larger pieces of shredded chicken become black on the edges and the smaller pieces have turned into insanely hot little tasty pieces of pain, your onions, jalapenos, and all the other ingredients will be dark and you should be good to go. Serve this on a plate with a dollop of sour cream. Serve with your favorite beverage or cocktail and brace yourself for the heat. You will sweat, you will cough, and it might just give you an out-of-body experience where it feels like you're floating above your own body for five to ten minutes, if you're lucky. You also might want to follow this hellishly hot dish with some ice cream for dessert. I won't go into too much detail, suffice to say that this satanically hot snack will burn going all the way down and out. Come on, ice cream. You've been warned. I'm Jesse Edwards. I'm glad you didn't bring it in today, Jesse. It wouldn't have been a good idea. As always, it's interesting what comes from Jesse. It never fails. And from the sublime to the semi-serious and ennobling, it's National Adoption Month. And throughout the month, we're bringing you stories that will move you and inspire you. And today's is from Eva Minert. And this is a letter she wrote to her daughter, her daughter she ended up surrendering to adoptive parents. And we got this story from bravelove.org. Let's take a listen. My dearest Joey, I have written to you once before. It was the day that your adoptive family came to take you home. 
I was 15 at the time and lost in my feelings. I knew as soon as I handed the envelope over that my mess of emotion would be read as immature and unwelcome. I am happy to be getting this second chance. I found out that I was pregnant at age 14 after only dating your birth father for a short few months. It was tough for everyone else but me to hear the news. I didn't cry but one single tear because I think I knew deep down, no matter how hard this was going to be for me, you were a blessing regardless. Nine months passed by quickly. It was full of ups and downs. My parents, your grandparents, were always pushing me for adoption. But having been adopted myself, I never wanted that for my firstborn. I thought Miles and I could work it out. I thought we might actually be able to pull this parenting thing off. But as your due date grew closer and closer, he kept proving to me he wasn't ready. And I wanted the absolute best for you. So we decided to meet with a couple adoptive families. But that second family that we met, we fell in love with. We knew that they were going to be the perfect parents for you. They had already adopted a little girl, and their history reminded me so much of my own families. We then decided to go ahead with the adoption. However, around the 15th of December, only a short month until your arrival, I decided I couldn't go through with it without at least trying to parent. So on January 23rd, 2011, I gave birth to a beautiful little girl. We took you home a week later, and I had a wonderful three weeks at home with you. You made my days bright, and you filled my heart with joy. But being a single parent is hard, and it feels ten times harder at that age, with no job and three years left of high school. Miles wasn't in the picture then, and I still wanted to give you everything that I couldn't. So I called Brian and Michelle and let them know that they would be taking home little Joey Ray within the next week. It was the single hardest day of my life, and I never wanted to let you go. I hope as you grow and learn more about this, you never feel like we chose this for you because we didn't care enough. We chose this for you because we cared too much. We will always love you. You are my favorite little lady. Each time I see you, I am so proud of how smart you are and how much that you've grown. You are my little mini-me, so shy but so personable. You are my world, little one. Never forget how many people love you. Love, your birth mother, Eva. And you can't get much more courageous than that and selfless than that. And thanks for that contribution. And my goodness, thanks for doing what you did for your child. Perhaps as selfless a thing as a human being can do. This is Lee Habib, National Adoption Month, and you'll be hearing beautiful adoption stories all month long here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. 
And it's time for one of our favorite regular features of one of our favorite people. It's the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. And of course, it's Heidi Mitchell. And her latest question, why do some people have inescapable foot odor and thus the music? And Heidi, by the way, has just recently moved to Chicago. And of course, because of her move, move the Cubs decided to win a World Series in her honor. Welcome, Heidi. That's what we're telling people. That's what you should. Stick with that story all the way. <laughs> hey, look, uh, before we get into the foot odor, and this is just such a good story because I grew up with two brothers, myself, in one room, and we loved playing sports, and we had one little closet, and all we did was play basketball all, all day and then stick our, our sneakers in the closet. And one brother had really awful foot odor. The other two, it wasn't so bad. And we just didn't know why his feet stunk and ours didn't. Very strange. But why foot odor? Why did you pick foot odor and not all the other types of body odor uh, that there are? Well, I really hope that my 11-year-old never hears this. I'm sure he'll find it. But it was really, it was inspired by my middle child who has the stinkiest feet. It makes the whole house seem like, it. I don't know, like you've left something somewhere and it's gone. Yeah, like it's a, like a pungent smell. I can't really even describe it. And it's toxic. It fills up the room. So anyway, my other two kids don't smell like that. So I thought about this, and, and you know, we, we, we tried cleaning his feet and changing his socks and buying different kinds of socks. And so anyway, when, we t- when I brought it up to, to my wonderful editor, they thought that was a great idea, and they wanted to know. Inquiring minds want to know. So in the end, it comes from the same kind of personal history that I had growing up. And by the way, we yep. did everything. And he's, that, that odor sounded... No, no, it wasn't me. It was my brother. I can't say which one. He'd kill me. But he was the cross-country runner. And, and my goodness, it, he sweated a lot because he ran a lot. And, and it was as if something died, not just in the room, but in the house. And it infected yeah. the clothes. Like, my clothes smelled. My, my, I smelled because of his smelly feet. That's how bad yeah. it was. Oh, so, 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 so does your husband, first of all, do you inherit this? Does your husband have smelly feet, Heidi? You know what? He doesn't. In fact, he's going to kill me, but he doesn't even wear deodorant under his armpits. He doesn't smell at all. Wow. Maybe he's not human. And I don't have stinky feet. So, and I can't remember any of my siblings having stinky feet. I think he said his brother did. <laughs> anyway, so for, I don't know why. Yes, but it, it, they, podiatrists believe that stinky feet are partly hereditary. Most of them believe that. So, so you know, we're, we're, I'm going to blame it on his side of the family, but um, it also, because you, you find it when you're young, like that brother maybe doesn't have such stinky feet anymore. There is evidence to suggest that hormones have a lot to do with how much, you know, your odor, your body is producing. That this doctor that I spoke to, um, Jane Anderson, who um, is in Chapel Hill, and she's uh, also an American Pediatric Medical Association spokeswoman, and she, she said she definitely sees a lot more kids than adults. And, and Jane Anderson, Jane Anderson, by the way, pointed out that there are more than 250,000 sweat glands in each human foot. Yeah, you don't want to know um, bacteria. Oh, you know, yeah, it's, I, in, ew, it's gross. Uh, it's gross. And, and so, so, so what happens to your son? I mean, do you treat this? Do you, what do you do to stop this, Heidi? So the, so the first thing, so she said, so you can't really fix it, but you can help you know, diminish it. Like, you will outgrow it, hopefully. But so she said, basically, you want him to, um, to get synthetic material that is sweat, what is it, wicking. 
So as long as, so he's wearing a sock that has, she loves this, um, it's called, it's called, um, Smart Wool. So it's actually, it's, it's, I think a mix, a blend of merino. Anyway, this, this product, it, it helps your, your wicking of your sweat so that it leaves your body. So what happens is, um, your foot is trapped in this shoe. It gets sweaty, right? And your foot, foot's producing this, this bacteria. The bacteria is breaking down and it's causing this, um, this stinky odor. And if you keep, if the, if the shoe and the sock never dry out, then the bacteria can grow and also mold and stuff like that. Oh, so it's pretty gross. <laughs> so even if you clean your foot and you put it back into the shoe that's not really fully dry or put it back into a sock that keeps that moisture in, it's gonna it's like glue, like stinky glue goes right back onto your foot. So she says that you want to tame this the stink, right? That's the best thing that you can do. So first you want to see if, you know, there's some, there's some hormonal issue. Then you want to see if there's like a fungus you can get a, a podiatrist and see if you've got like athlete's foot and like that might make it worse. Then she, she said, and I thought this was interesting, that you should, um, you should have two pairs of shoes, which actually my, my kids don't, they don't, they really just wear one. Right. Um, anyway, that you want two so that one can dry fully, like for 24 hours, and then you can use the other shoe in during that 24 hour period. And, and that, then you want to use these kind of acrylic socks, wicking socks. So, the, so between the socks and the rotation of the shoes, and then there's one more thing. And by the way, this <laughs> periodically worked when we did it. Is we would just throw the, we would just take his sneakers away from him, throw them in the washing machine, and I mean pour a half a gallon of Clorox on him and just shoot the. I mean, we'd just kill everything in him. But the problem with the Clorox is it wore away at those old sneakers. I mean, they killed the sneakers too. It's true. I know it's true. Well, we've started with the, the bleach, as she suggested. I bought those little pellets of bleach, and I've been throwing and doing a, a, a wash of just socks, <laughs> um, and then making sure his shoes are super dry. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, and for him, I think he's, he's embarrassed. Um, I shouldn't just talk about my kid. People in general are embarrassed by this smell, right? And so um, she also said, you know, like Febreze can work, and I thought this is going to mask the odor, um, and she uses this kind of cool paste of mixing uh, baking soda and water she puts on the rubber. I can't believe a flip flop would smell, but even a rubber shoe throw up on the inside. Um, she put this kind of paste of baking soda and water she recommends to, to kind of draw out the bad odor and then start again. Also pointing out that it's really important to wash your feet. <laughs> yeah, that would help. Fully. That would help. <laughs> Don't forget that. Yeah. And by the way, she also mentioned Febreze and, and also, What's this with brewed black tea? I mean, this sounds right, like so, home remedies for stinky feet. Well, what's interesting is that she lives in uh, North Carolina, and she said her client, her her patients, they have kind of an allergy to an aversion to you know using any over the counter stuff or whatever. So she can prescribe something like an antiperspirant for your feet, but her her people in her area prefer holistic approaches. So she found that tea. Um, I think it's the tannic acids in the tea. So you brew really strong black tea for like 30 minutes and then you put it in a bucket or tub or something and you stick your feet in there um, for like a half hour, um, you know, once it's cooled. And that will kind of maintain the, it will kill the bacteria and it will, it will hopefully maintain once you've gotten to a place where your feet are nice and clean and your shoes are dry and your new socks. Um, I've invested a lot in socks, so I can tell you that. I just, them out. Well, I'm, really I'm, hope, I'm hoping for you and him. You know, as my brother grew a little older, he actually did go out of it. But I mean, it wasn't until college. And so his dating life, let's just say 
there was a struggle because his feet were so bad that you could actually smell the feet while the sneakers were on sometimes. I mean, it would just creep, it would just creep out, and it was so bad because he was hygienically sound. He washed himself. He showered. And by the way, that leads me to one last thing because I do think, Heidi, there has to be a companion piece. I was in New York last a few weeks ago. I get into a cab, and, the, and, and I just needed the cab because it was raining. And it was raining pretty hard. But I got in that cab, and the body odor of the cab driver was so powerful that I, I told him I needed to go 30 blocks. A block in, I said, oh, I forgot. I need to get off right here. I gave him like 10 bucks just to get out of the cab and go back in the rain. And so what do you do about like body odor itself in general? I think you need a companion piece to, to body odor because foot odor is one thing. But, oh, my goodness, really bad body odor? It's just brutal hiding. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I think that you just, you must not smell it on yourself and think that you're fine, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Someone has to tell them. You need an intervention. I think so. Intervention. <laughs> I think so. But I would love to know what the causes are of that. I'd love to know whether it's, it's uh, hereditary, whether it's diet, whether it's a combination of those things. I mean, we've learned here that it's mostly younger people that suffer from this foot odor and as folks get older, uh, Heidi, it just tends to go away, correct? That's right. So that, that's In fact, a- I asked about menopause, if that, because that's a hormone change. If that, and she said she hasn't seen women with menopause come in with stinkier feet. <laughs> that's great. So this is good news. <laughs> good news for everybody. Stinky feet's been the subject. And <laughs> this could be one of my favorites, Heidi, because it just hits home <laughs> and it's personal. Now I think I understand some things better. The burning question with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And congratulations on the uh, World Series victory. I think you need to move to another city that hasn't won a championship in a long time, Heidi, and bring a championship to their town, too. Thanks for joining us, as always. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do. And this is Our American Stories. And now for our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment with our marriage coach, Deb Olniak, executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a group whose innovative couple-to-couple mentoring program has an 87% success rate in saving struggling marriages. And that's compared to 28% with traditional marriage counselors. Every week, Deb joins us for storytelling about marriage, and we take calls about marriage. Today's topic chronic pain, and how it can affect a marriage, a topic you may not have heard discussed before anywhere. And again, if you have questions or even stories for Deb about this topic, give us a call at 1-877-655-6755. That's 877-655-6755. 
Let's now go to Deb's conversation with Pam Puckett and Cindy Snyder-Ray of the Chronic Joy Ministry. Pam and her daughter have chronic illnesses, and Cindy and four of her kids have chronic illness, experiences that led to the formation of their ministry. Here's Deb. Our human nature wants to run away from situations that are painful, but you guys don't have that choice, do you? (laughs) No, we really don't. (laughs) We try sometimes. (laughs) We like to pretend we're running away, but it just doesn't happen. Physical pain just continues to follow you, I'm certain, correct? It, it does. I think one of the, I was going to say, I think one of the hardest things is that you, there is no break from it. There isn't, you can't take a vacation from chronic illness. You can't, you know, leave for college and leave the chronic illness behind. You can't make a job change. There's nothing you can do to separate your life from illness. So it really is learning how to live well with it in the midst of what you're, what you're dealing with. Do you, um, I'm going to focus in, Cindy, on your situation, being that your family and multiple family members are suffering from this. Tell us how that that works. I mean, with kids and schedules and routine and non-routine, how does that all play out with medical help, et cetera? So we learned early on because our um, middle daughter, Anna, was pretty sick as a four-year-old. She spent almost a full year at Children's Hospital on and off. And we learned early on that the medical portion of it was going to be a big component of our life even then, um, before we understood how serious all this was. So we have homeschooled all the way along, not because of that, but that has become a, a huge benefit to us as a family because we can work around illness. We can work around all these doctor's appointments and all the hospitalizations. We just take school with us wherever it is. Um, and it's worked out very well for us. But it is um, it is a big challenge. There's We don't go on family vacations. It's very difficult to go out to eat. Our oldest son now almost never leaves home. So we host holidays here and parties here because he's unable to leave. And we really don't want to leave him alone. Mm-hmm. So it, it really does affect absolutely everything. And it becomes a way of life. Um, not that that's necessarily bad, but it's definitely challenging. Right. And, I mean, what does a regular month or week look like for you guys um, related to medical help? So, on an average basis, we spend at least two days a week down at Children's Hospital with the kids, seeing a whole variety of specialists from GI to neurology, cardiology, um, hematology, orthopedics, physical therapy, occupational therapy. There's a just an endless list of doctors that they see. Fortunately, we have some of the most incredible doctors and teams that I could ever expect to have for any of my kids. This is amazing because we're talking about, you know, physical pain. But the financial pain, and I'd like to hear from Cindy first and Pam, has got to be very difficult on your family. The next biggest stress in the marriage. Um, it has been really significant. Uh, I would say that our single biggest capital outlay every year is medical. And it's the medications themselves are incredibly expensive. There is one medication that my daughter and I both use um, that is $4,500 every time we fill it. It's not a monthly medication, thankfully, but it's an incredibly expensive one that insurance does not cover. 
And then some of the treatments that my kids experience um, can be $30,000 every time we do them. Again, we've been incredibly blessed with good insurance, and my husband has a really good job. So that has helped tremendously, but, but it is definitely our singest, big, single biggest capital outlay every year. Yeah. How about you, Pam? Um, because it started when my daughter was 12, you know, it became what we just considered normal. I mean, as much as that doesn't make sense, it's just, you know, your number one expense and you just make it work. Um, it doesn't always work. Um, and there are lots of things that you do without. There are times that, you know, I hate to admit in any marriage, but, you know, we tend to occasionally argue. Um, we refer to it as loud discussions occasionally about <laughs> the finances. Um, not so much that we disagree that we need to spend the money. We're just frustrated. We don't know how to make it all work, mm-hmm. you know, and you try so hard because this is your kid um, and, you know, the medication is expensive or you know, it's all the little things. It's not even, I mean, the big things are there. Those seem, you know, that they're coming, that big expensive doctor's appointment or whatever that might be, but it's the nickel and dimes. It's the, every time you go to the pharmacy, it's one more thing. And then it's the supplements on top of that. And then it's, you know, it's just one more thing after another. It's just like you never quite ever get back to a place that you feel comfortable. And yeah. yet I would suggest that that may be the best place our marriage has gone. We've had to come to decide that, that we have to trust that it's going to work out because somehow it does. What is the best suggestion that you have for people listening that might be suffering from either an emotional illness, a chronic physical illness, that is one of those kind of life sentences things. What do you suggest to them to help build a stronger marriage? I mean, that's a big question. (laughs) So what if in any and every relationship, including marriage, we remove expectation and learn to offer grace in its place to one another? Mm. That's where I think we're learning that when I extend grace and let my husband feel frustrated about the finances and I listen and it doesn't allow, I don't get involved in expecting him to, he's just working through what he needs to work through. And he does that for me as well as I work through the frustration that my kid's sick. And when we offer grace, those conversations are much better than when we expect the other person to be or do something that is not possible. Right. I'm going to throw that question to Cindy, too. Do you have any suggestions for folks that might want to grow their marriage in the midst of pain? I think that one of the things we looked at was, at one point, we were really just hanging on to our marriage. And we were in it because we were committed, but we really had no idea how to communicate or get along with one another, so we avoided each other. We came together for the things we needed to come together for, dealing with the kids, dealing with the medical, dealing with the financial. But together, we had lost connection with each other. And at one point, I looked at him and I said, you know, we really have to give ourselves grace because we have stayed together. The divorce rate is incredibly high when people have one chronically ill child. We have four, and you have a wife who's chronically ill. And I said, you know, there's something incredible about the fact that our commitment has kept us together. And we need to look at that and embrace that and celebrate that. That is a good thing, even if that's all we had. And I would say that anybody who's in that place and at that absolute breaking point, there is hope. It can get better. It takes a lot of hard work, but it is possible and it is so worth it. 
we're in a better place now a year and a half later. We learned how to talk to one another, and there were a lot of tears, and there was a lot of frustration, but it started to slowly melt, and we learned how to communicate with one another again, and we found each other again. And it's been an incredible journey, and it's been worth all of the hard times. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Chronic pain, marriage. When we come back, we'll talk with Deb Wolniak. We'll actually hear a little more from those two remarkable folks who are trying to minister to marriages under the stress of chronic illness and chronic pain. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Our Marriage on the Mind segment with Deb Walniak, Pam Paquette, Cindy Snyder-Ray of the Chronic Joy Ministry. We heard from both of them. And Deb, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for bringing up this important topic. Well, I was amazed when I started learning more and more about how pervasive chronic illness is in our society. 40% of adults in any given group suffer from chronic pain. Yep. Yeah, and I know this one firsthand. My wife has experienced chronic pain most of her life. Serious back pain, knee pain, uh, chronic migraines, and it's a, it's, a, it's a handful, and it can be tough. And it's tough on her, it's tough on me, it's tough on the child. And mm-hmm. how to navigate your way through it, we've really learned how, and that grace thing is, is so important. But uh, the woman feels guilty in, in my case. I sometimes feel powerless. Um, things go unsaid, and it's just really difficult. And I, uh, that 40% number does not surprise me at all, Deb. Mm-hmm. And so many people suffer silently because as much as you guys are feeling the pain internally, emotionally, physically, etc., there's a lot of people that you just don't even feel like you want to talk to because you're, it's always in your face. You know what I mean? That's a tough situation. You have a tendency to start to feel alone, and it can affect you. It can even bring on some depression here and there. So. Oh, no, no doubt, because what are you going to do when you say, how's your day going? What do you want to say? I'm in pain, and then the next thing you know, you're that person complaining about their pain all the time. And so yeah. then you internalize it, and then you're, you're off to the races to being alone being lonely and facing depression. And then the, the two just sort of feed off each other. How did you, how did you stumble upon uh, both Pam and Cindy, Deb? Well, so, so I was at a writer's conference, uh, just a private small one up here in the Wisconsin area uh, about a year ago. And what was amazing is a wonderful group of women from around the country in Alaska came together. And we met, and Pam and I... Um, I mean, Cindy and I really hit it off, and we were just, I was really amazed at her stories. She's a storyteller, and to be um, published, hopefully by the summer, um, with three other books to follow on this exact issue. And we want to make sure that people can connect with her and their website as well, um, because you're going to want to read some of these books to help get additional resources and support. Uh, yeah, I'm going to want to read them myself, Deb. I mean, it's, you know, you can think you're over the hump and you can count on grace, but there are some techniques. There are some things you can do 
and plot along and, 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 and any kind of educational support for people here in this particular space. We want to connect folks, folks with. I wanted to play a clip, Deb, and get your comment. Your last question to these two ladies was what words of encouragement could they offer others that are dealing with chronic illness, whether it be themselves or a loved one? And let's take a listen to their answer. Mine is more of a question. And the question is, what if? What if illness? What if this stripping away of our health, of our dreams, of our understanding of who we are, and what our future holds is really a gift. What if that is where we find God, unencumbered by all the noise, by all these things that clutter our hearts? What if as a culture we look at illness all wrong? What if it's really those who are most ill who are really most blessed? Because what if that is where hope is, where we learn to see what is most important right here, right in this moment? The beautiful, the hard, the precious right here. What if that is true? Yeah. That is a really tough thing to follow because I knew what she was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, but let's let's drill it back to I mean, this is your your piece as well, because yes, very eloquent, but your story is equally as important. Your feedback is equally as important because yes. you hold you. a very valuable place in this piece. I think um, I think the word inconvenient is an odd place to suggest might be encouragement. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's those really inconvenient moments, those really inconvenient things that happen in our lives that actually turn out to have a great purpose. I know now from this vantage point that taking the time to sit with Cindy one day when we really didn't know each other, it changed my life forever because what took her family seven years to become diagnosed with was, I, I can't help but say that this was a God moment. He knew that I would need to know that someone came before me. And it took us one year to get my daughter from beginning to geneticist because of the preparation of taking that moment, that time to sit with Cindy and allow a friendship to begin. So my encouragement is pretty simple. If it seems inconvenient, it might be God. And I don't want to miss it. That's pretty powerful, Deb. And I think we've all had that experience in our lives. Those things that were most inconvenient actually taught us so much about ourselves, about our lives, and made us stop and get closer to that space. If you're a believer in God, most certainly, and whatever else your core beliefs might be, it most certainly, those toughest times in life got you closer to those things. Uh, talk about uh, faith in all this um, and again, not everybody here is a, is a, is a Christian or, or, or a Jew or a, a Buddhist or whatever the, the various people listening are of faith. But talk about the role of faith and grace uh, in these two women's lives. Mm. Well, you can definitely sense it. This is a this is a couple of women that actually, when they first met, were having a really hard time getting along because their sons weren't getting along. But as they continued to work together and they continued to learn that they had the both had a very unique illness, it was definitely a God moment that they came together to support each other and then to eventually reach out and encourage others. So that moment, I believe, was you know definitely one of those fingerprints of God moments because. From that moment and them working together and just like a really good marriage, you take those teachable moments that seem really hard, 
you keep communicating, you keep finding those small rays of hope and enjoy even the simple things. I mean, it sounds crazy for some people that struggle with digestive disorders. Some days, if you can just keep something down, it's like, thank the Lord. You know, you just, just even that just brings a ray of hope. But for so many that struggle with this day in, day out, I just want to encourage couples, keep going. Keep going in your relationship and communicating and then keep educating yourself about those illnesses and allow yourself some space and people to come around you to maybe even take time with your spouse if you need a break, etc. And um, really reach out. Let people know where you're at and take away the stigma. We have got to do this in this culture where we don't, you know, point fingers, but we come around and just love on each other because we really need it, especially in these times where we're feeling so alone or deprived. We need each other to keep going and pushing through it. And those that do find that their marriage is even stronger, even in the midst of those changes. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that next week. Yeah, we will. And we're going to, we're going to continue with this theme and this subject with uh, Deb Wolniak here on our Marriage on the Mind segment because it's a big one. Again, when we hear the number 40%, it's staggering. Uh, but I don't, I don't think people think about chronic pain that way or mental illness or chronic illness. And, you know, Deb, mm-hmm. we spent some time on mental illness uh, not too long ago. And, you know, not too long ago, we also we spent some time commemorating Nancy Reagan. And, you know, everybody, everybody saw her as a woman of strength, but, you know, what she dealt with, she never really spoke about in depth. But my goodness, this man she loved had, had just been eaten up by Alzheimer's. And what those last few years and many years, I mean, it wasn't just a few, it was many. Um, that's, uh, that's something, thank goodness, that we talk about here on the show. And we look forward to continuing the theme with you next week, Deb. Uh, thanks so much yeah. for bringing this one up with us. Absolutely. And by the way, for anyone who's looking at the website, chronic-joy.org. Go check it out. You bet. That's chronic-joy.org, and that's the Chronic Joy Ministry, and that's Pam Paquette and Cindy Snyder-Ray. Those are the two really courageous women who you heard talking. And Deb, again, thanks, by the way, for that answer. That inconvenience answer was just really stunning and really startlingly good. Much appreciated, as always, Deb. Absolutely. Take care of yourself. You bet. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And to catch all of our Marriage on the Mind segments, you can go to our website, hit Topics, and there they are. They'll go straight down. If you're in a marriage, you're finding yourself struggling through any particular point, we're trying to capture all the struggle points, all the stress points. By the way, we also talk about successful marriages, and we talk about you know, how to get through. We talked to people who've been married, what, 70 years, guys, a couple of weeks ago? A couple have been married 70 years. And so we had a young lady on here from Ole Miss, maybe a year out of college, and, and her husband had graduated from from uh, Ole Miss, and he was a star on the football team. And well, he didn't get drafted in the NFL, and he had lost his identity. And he was struggling, and so she was struggling. And she came on the air and talked. And this is the continuum of marriage. It never gets easier. Uh, and sharing wisdom, sharing stories together, that's all we can do in this world. And ultimately share solutions where we can. And the biggest one, you're not alone. You're not alone no matter what you're going through. And so go to our Marriage on the Mind segments at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Take a listen. Deb's wisdom is, well, we sought, sought the best in the country 
when we wanted to do this marriage segment, and we found her in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. That's Deb Walniak. That's Marriage on the Mind. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. stories and for the hour a uniquely american story for our this day in history series and on this day in history annie oakley died she was a shooting star a magician whose magic wand was a gun right-handed left-handed on a horse through a mirror she couldn't miss at a time when women were only expected to fire up the oven annie oakley fired her way to fame as the world's greatest sharpshooter in her personal life She was a sharpshooter as well. She was devoted to her marriage and to her faith. She was a Christian. And it's no wonder that Annie Oakley inspired scores of books and movies and the Broadway musical, Annie Get Your Gun. But as you're about to hear, the reality, well, it's even better. A fierce blizzard swept into western Ohio. Phoebe Ann Moses, the fifth surviving child in a poor Quaker farming family, waited for her beloved father to come home from the mill, 15 miles away. It was midnight when Jacob Moses finally returned. His hands were frozen solid, his speech gone. He never recovered and died a few months later. Phoebe Ann, or Annie, was just five years old. The family soon lost the farm. Bills piled up. They were destitute. To ease the burden, Annie's mother Susan had to sell the family farm and pet cow just to pay the medical and funeral bills. Here's the grandniece of Annie Oakley, Bess Edwards. Annie stepped in and she saved the family. They were hungry. Rather than be hungry, what are you going to do? If you have a talent like hers, you make use of it just as fast as you can, and she did. The eight-year-old Annie took it upon herself to provide food for her family, who now leased a smaller farm. She reached for her deceased father's Kentucky rifle hanging above the fireplace, rested the barrel on the porch railing, and shot her first small game, a squirrel. I was eight years old when I took my first shot, and I still consider it one of the best shots I ever made, Annie Oakley. I guess the love of a gun, she recalled, 
must have been born in me. In spite of Annie's efforts, her family's financial situation worsened, forcing her mother to place the children with friends and neighbors. Ten-year-old Annie moved into a shelter for the destitute. Here she learned to sew and embroider, a skill she would practice the rest of her life when she wasn't shooting. Soon she was hired out to work as a live-in helper for a family in a neighboring county. Everyone thought this was going to be an improvement, but it turned out to be absolutely nightmarish situation. She never mentioned their name again in the rest of her life. She referred to them as the wolves. They locked her in closets. They worked her half to death. One day, the farmer's wife, the wolf, Mrs. Wolf, throws her out in the snow because she fell asleep while she was doing some darning. Suddenly, the she-wolf struck me across the ears, threw me out into the deep snow, and locked the door. I had no shoes on. I was slowly freezing to death. So I got down on my knees, looked toward God's clear sky, and tried to pray. But my lips were frozen stiff, and there was no sound. They told her folks, in fact, they told her mother that she didn't want to go home. They told her that uh, her mother didn't want her back. After three miserable years in 1872, 12-year-old Annie Moses could bear it no more. She ran away, slipped into a crowded railroad car, and made her way back home to her mother in Greenville, Ohio. Susan Moses had remarried, but the family was still desperately poor and a mortgage loomed over their heads. Instead of going to school, Annie taught herself to shoot. With her father's old cap and ball rifle, she headed for the woods to hunt. There, in what she called the fairy places, she began her lifelong love for the great outdoors. Annie preferred moving targets to sitting ones. It gave them a fair chance, she reasoned, and made me quick of eye and hand. Soon, she was selling hampers of quail to Katzenberger's general store in Greenville. Young Annie was now the family breadwinner, earning a living with her gun. She was a market hunter and turning a very nice profit. Certainly not something that was at all appropriate for a woman to be doing in that time and place. Eventually, she saved up enough money to pay off the $200 mortgage on the family farm. And her prowess with the shotgun was becoming known around Greenville. Annie wasn't just good for a girl. She was good for anybody. Annie was exceptionally good. Her father had given her instructions. He was the one that told her always shoot game through the head so that you didn't spoil the meat. By her late teens, Annie had won so many turkey shoots that she was barred from entering them. In the 1870s, shooting well was an important skill for a man, and shooting contests were a favorite spectator sport. Sharpshooters traveled the country, betting on their ability to perform feats of marksmanship and challenging all comers. Shooting was of such immense uh, popularity that there were professionals, Doc Carver, an evil spirit of the plains is what he was called. Captain Bogardus, 
who eventually had four sons who traveled with him. And people were flocking to see shooters like this. One such shooter was Frank Butler, an Irish immigrant in his mid-twenties. Butler was just starting to make a name for himself on the vaudeville circuit. He was passing through southern Ohio one fall, claiming he could outshoot anyone around. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this story of Annie Oakley, who died on this day in history in 1926. More after these messages. American stories, and we're talking about the life of Annie Oakley, sharpshooter, legend, and pioneer in so many ways. And if you've seen the Broadway musical Annie Get Your Gun, you kind of sort of know the story. But this is, as Paul Harvey liked to say, the rest of the story. We now return to where we left off with this world class female shooter. And a world-class shooter, Frank Butler, who was passing through Southern Ohio, claiming he could outshoot, well, anybody. Frank is staying in a hotel in Cincinnati, and he starts talking with a bunch of farmers. The farmers say, hey, we have someone in our county who's a really good shot, and we're going to bet 100 bucks that this person can beat you. Butler laughed, but he needed the money. The match was on. Frank Butler, this already professional shootist, shows up for this match with hundreds of people watching. And who is it that uh, comes as his opponent but a, a 15-year-old girl who was only uh, five feet tall and weighed 100 pounds? Butler recalled. I almost dropped dead when a little slim girl in short dresses stepped out to the mark with me. I was a beaten man the moment she appeared. Right then and there, I decided if I could get that girl, I would do it. Frank Butler, 1924. They shot evenly for 25, for 24 birds, and on the 25th bird, he missed. Uh, but he was a very gracious loser. He, uh, he thanked her for the match, complimented her on her skill, and then courted her for a year. <laughs> There's a charming little girl. She's many miles from here. She's a loving little fairy. You'd fall in love to see her. Her presence would remind you of an angel in the skies. And you bet I love this little girl with the raindrops in her eyes. Frank Butler, 1881. He was in his 20s when they met. She was 15. And yet within a year, they were married. He made himself appear safe to her. He clearly admired her. He sparked and courted her as few of us have ever been sparked or courted and every one of us would like to be by someone. And she was lucky to find him and I think he knew he was lucky to find her. For the next six years, however, while Butler and his shooting partner John Graham performed on the vaudeville circuit, Annie stayed in the background. That was about to change. 
The story is that Butler's partner, a fellow named Graham, was ill, and she was called up as a member of the audience and was so obviously good at it and so charming and such a novelty to the audience that Graham was never heard of again. At some time, she adopted the name Oakley as a stage name, and nobody knows why, and uh, Butler and Oakley became a shooting sensation. From that day to this, I have not competed with her in public shooting. She outclassed me. Frank Butler, 1925. When the shooting team of Butler and Oakley hit the road, traveling entertainment was in its heyday. Circuses, theater companies, and vaudeville acts traveled the country, playing venues from outdoor arenas to smoky saloons. For Annie and Frank, it was an exhausting life of noisy train rides, seedy hotels, and one-night stands. Their shooting act might be sandwiched in between a bawdy songstress and a scantily clad acrobat. Variety was a largely male-oriented form of entertainment. There was a great deal of double entendre and comedy. Uh, there were suggestive lyrics and songs. Uh, and there was a good deal of semi-nudity. The acts could be a tad salacious. It was the Victorian age. Annie Oakley, the Christian girl from Ohio, feared being thought a loose woman. She resolved to set herself apart, both in manner and in dress. She began wearing an outfit that completely covered her body. A calf-length skirt, long sleeves and leggings, and a hat that sparkled with a silver star. Her look became her trademark, and this costume, though distinctive and eye-catching, was as modest as Annie's attitude towards her talent. She made her own costumes. That was very important to her. It was part of her desire to control her self-presentation. She could move easily in them, and yet she looked, uh, she looked respectable. She looked childlike. The women in the West uh, were just like the men, entrepreneurial, courageous, bold, adventurous, intelligent. The West really selected and filtered people. The women had to be all those things the men were in spades because they were doing all the same things the men were doing and lacking the same degree of physical prowess uh, that the men had. And the women in the West were the very uh, best that America had to offer. Frank soon realized that Annie was the main attraction of Butler and Oakley. In a remarkable reversal of 19th century roles, Frank Butler became Annie Oakley's assistant. I think Frank Butler understood that she had a kind of star quality that he didn't want to overshadow it. And Frank Butler didn't have a problem with that. I think he adored her. I think he also was a savvy businessman who understood that she was pretty, she was ladylike, she was petite. She would do what needed to be done to make that rise to the top. And he didn't want to get in her way. As a matter of fact, he understood that for the two of them, the best thing possible was for to let her take the lead. In 1884, Butler and Oakley landed a 40-week job with Sells Brothers Circus, one of the biggest traveling shows in the country. Finally, they had steady work 
with a clean, family-oriented show. But circus life was hard and the pay unreliable. When the season ended in New Orleans that December, it looked as if Frank and Annie would have to go back to a life of one-night stands and unsavory characters. When the circus season is ending, the very week that Buffalo Bill's Wild West comes to New Orleans, and it's like, wow, the circus is ending, we need a job, so they ask Cody if they can come on with the show. To Annie, it was a dream job. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was a lavish historical pageant, part melodrama, part circus, part rodeo. And it featured the finest performers in the country. It offered a taste of life on the old frontier to an America that was rapidly industrializing. In the crowded urban centers of the East, people flocked to Buffalo Bill's show, eager for a glimpse of the Wild West. This spectacle was the forerunner of Western movies and TV programs. The whole world was fascinated with the West. And as it was becoming settled, those elements that were seen as the foundation of, uh, of America's uniqueness, um, the rugged individualism and um, the adventure and the conflict with Indians and with, um, and with Buffalo seemed to be coming to an end. Uh, Buffalo Bill was a representative, a living representative of that story, of that adventure. And it's that adventure that he put into his Wild West show. saw the real stagecoach, they saw real soldiers, they saw real Indians and cowboys. There were horses, there were steer, there were live buffalo. It was into this roiling microcosm of the Wild West that Annie Oakley, the little girl from Ohio, first stepped in April 1885. Cody placed her low on the bill but she soon became an audience favorite. Her 10-minute program combined Frank's vaudeville experience with her talents as a sharpshooter athlete and actress. The result distinguished her from other shooters. Annie didn't just aim a gun and fire, she performed. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Annie Oakley's story, and as always, are this days in history are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to study all the things that matter in life, philosophy, history, the arts. And of course, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out all of their terrific online courses. When we come back, the rest of this story, the rest of the story of Annie Oakley. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, the life of Annie Oakley, our This Day in History segment. And when we left off, we found out that Annie was just very blessed and very lucky to have someone like Frank Butler, who recognized her talents, got out of the way, and just supported her. My goodness, even today that's hard to find. But back then, my goodness, practically impossible. Let's continue with this great story. Ladies and gentlemen, She tripped into the arena. She didn't walk in. She blew kisses. She waved. She was like animated, alive, like this sweet person, but with this big bang gun. She starts off slow. One ball, two balls. Glass balls, which when they're hit, uh, they explode and feathers uh, fly out. Frank would toss up one and then two at a time and then three at a time. Then Annie Oakley would toss them up herself. She'd toss two or three or four target balls in the air, grab a shotgun, shoot two, grab another, shoot two more. And she could hit all three before any one of them would reach the ground. Then she'd go to six. Her act gets faster and faster and faster and faster until, you know, it's just like boom, boom. Things are just uh, being broken all around. She could shoot with her left hand, with her right hand. She, like, turns her gun upside down or sideways or sighting in the mirror. One of her favorite tricks was to have Frank hold a a playing card up and she could uh, either shoot through the heart when it was flat against her or if it was held sideways, she could split the card in two, which is a pretty amazing shot. Occasionally she'd miss a shot on purpose and then she'd kind of pout and this was part of the act because she she could always hit the target. She was somebody who never missed. I think it's an innate skill. She said, you know, nobody ever taught me to shoot. I think it was just a love of a gun was just born in me. It was an instinct and a skill and an ability that only persons who have phenomenal vision, have a wonderful sense of timing, who have hand-to-eye coordination, who have good balance, and who are really very athletic, because a really good shot has to be a really good athlete. Once Annie's act started getting rave reviews, Cody quickly moved her to the top of the bill. That season... 150,000 people in 40 cities across America saw something entirely new. A woman who could shoot as well as any man while conveying a youthful innocence that, whether Annie realized it or not, was sexy. It was the stuff of stardom. She was this really uh, remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, shot. Uh, But what makes her especially interesting is that she was able to combine that with with an image, with a kind of a vision of American womanhood that was provocative, but that many people felt comfortable with. One reviewer wrote, She handles a shotgun with an easy familiarity that causes the men to marvel and the women to assume airs of contented superiority. Springfield, Massachusetts, Republican, 1897. She had some sort of magnetism that, uh, that can only come from within. In private, she was quiet and reserved. But in public, she could reach the masses. 
Annie Oakley's celebrity grew when the Wild West spent the summer of 1886 in an arena on Staten Island. Half a million people sailed past the new Statue of Liberty, then rode on special trains straight to the Wild West. It was the most popular attraction ever seen in New York, and Annie was now becoming as famous as Buffalo Bill himself. Frank became Annie's press agent, playing on the deep fascination Easterners had with the Old West. He advertised his Ohio-born wife as the girl of the Western Plains. And he never tired of telling the story of the night Chief Sitting Bull, the old Sioux warrior, asked if he could adopt Annie. After watching her shoot the Ace of Hearts out of a card at 30 paces. When Sitting Bull first saw him, she had these amazing abilities, you know, to, uh, to handle a rifle and her keen eyesight. Then obviously she had some endowed power of some sort that he recognized immediately. When Indian people look at such individuals that have been empowered like that, then we have the greatest respect. Sitting Bull christened his new daughter, Little Sure Shot. For a time, he toured with Annie in Buffalo Bill's show, but the great chief soon left, saying he had grown sick of the noises and the multitudes of men. When Buffalo Bill's Wild West opened in Madison Square Garden in the fall of 1886, Little Sure Shot became the darling of Manhattan. She performed before 6,000 people, many in evening dress. The mistreated, half-starved little girl from Ohio had become an icon of the American West. It was probably never a woman in the history of the United States who was better equipped to take up the challenge of creating a legend, of creating a myth of the Western woman, and then embodying that myth with the kind of ladylike demeanor that would make her acceptable. It is a remarkable creation in American legend. In March 1887, Cody's Wild West troop sailed from New York Harbor, bound for London, to perform at Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. Their ship was a veritable Noah's Ark. The hold was packed with horses, buffalo, elk, and mules. Dozens of Native Americans huddled together, bracing for the first ocean voyage of their lives. Clustered in the bow were Buffalo Bill, Annie, and Frank, but also Cody's new discovery, 15-year-old Lillian Smith, a sharpshooting sensation from California. Lillian Smith was an expert with a rifle, so much so that Cody himself had said he would pay $10,000 to anybody who beat Lillian Smith at rifle shooting. She and Annie couldn't have been more different. Whereas Annie was modest, ladylike, and reserved, Lillian flaunted her ample figure and liked to brag. Even before they reached London, Lillian had been boasting. Now that I'm with the Wild West, she declared, Annie Oakley is done for. Lillian Smith tended to speak very coarsely, and she was uh, kind of rakish. She liked to hang around with the cowboys. And she had this bodice that said, champion rifle shot of the world. It was clear that the Wild West wouldn't be big enough for both of them. Lillian Smith really shows how competitive Annie is. 
She's worried because Lillian's 15 years old, Annie is 26 now. Suddenly, when you start reading the press releases, Annie becomes younger than she has been. She now starts telling people she's born in 1866. Now she's 20 and she's more, she can compete a little easier with this new girl in the Wild West show. She's practical, she does what she needs to survive. On May 9th, 1887, when the Wild West show opened in London, Oakley and Smith were given equal billing. 10,000 eager spectators clamored to get in. The crush and fight and struggle to reach the gates was something terrific, reported the London Evening News. In attendance were leading British intellectuals, such as playwright Oscar Wilde and many of the crowned heads of Europe. Annie particularly was a figure that Europeans welcomed because on the one hand she represented the, the wild western girl, but at the same time she was a Victorian woman who was there after all to meet the woman who created the Victorian era. And when we come back, the final segment in this hour-long segment on the life of Annie Oakley Imagine that. She's in London, an international superstar, and folks like Oscar Wilde are crashing in to see her. More after these moments. This is Our American Stories. This day in history, the life of Annie Oakley. This is Our American Stories, and now our final segment on the life of Annie Oakley. Let's pick up where we left off. The most important shooting event in England was the annual rifle competition at Wimbledon, and the big-name American shooters were invited to compete. Lillian Smith was the first to arrive. She shot poorly and left in a huff. The next day... Annie Oakley appeared. Annie does great, and she does it with a rifle. And Lillian's supposed to be the rifle expert. Annie's the shotgun shooter. So she has upstaged Lillian Smith, kind of beaten her at her own game. When a distinguished sports editor in attendance praised Annie's ladylike bearing above her shooting, she considered it the best compliment she ever received. Whether it was over Lillian or Annie's rocky relationship with Buffalo Bill, in late October, the London Evening News printed a stunning announcement. Annie Oakley would sever her connection with the Wild West voluntarily, following their final London performance that very evening. Two years passed. Then in February 1889, much to Annie's surprise, Buffalo Bill was planning a trip to Paris and wanted her back. They needed her. They needed her more than they thought they needed her. And so whatever rift there was is mended. And interestingly, Lillian Smith does not go to Paris. I mean, we don't know, but it would make sense that maybe that was part of the bargain. I'll come back if Lillian goes. 
Over 30 million people came to the Paris Exposition of 1889. Within sight of the newly erected Eiffel Tower, Buffalo Bill's Wild West played to overflow crowds night after night. On opening night, when Annie made her entrance, she noticed hired clappers. I want honest applause or none at all, she insisted. Annie Oakley was soon the talk of Paris. The French president offered her a commission in the army. When a French duke proposed marriage, Annie literally shot him down, putting a bullet through his portrait. Prince Wilhelm of Prussia was so impressed by Annie's skill that he insisted on participating in her act. He lit a cigarette. From 30 paces, Annie shot it away. If my aim had been poorer, she later said, I might have averted the Great War. And the King of Senegal tried to buy her for 100,000 francs. To destroy the vicious lions that devastate my country's villages, he said. In 1893, the World's Fair glowed with a new marvel, electric light, and showcased another, Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, a primitive device for viewing movies. In 1894, Edison invited Annie and Frank to his New Jersey studio for a test of his movie camera. In dim, smoky images, Edison's camera managed to capture Annie's performance. But the invention also signaled the end of the Wild West shows. By the early 1900s, movies would become the main source of Western entertainment. But for the rest of the 1890s, Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill were as popular as ever. Then, at 42 years of age, and from out of nowhere, on August 11th, 1903, headlines screamed of her downfall. William Randolph Hearst's Chicago newspapers reported that Oakley had stolen a pair of men's pants to buy cocaine. Annie Oakley, the most famous rifle shot in the world, lies today in a cell at the Harrison Street Station for stealing the trousers of a Negro in order to buy cocaine. Chicago American, August 11th, 1903. Well, of course it wasn't true. She was so outraged, it so went contrary to her character, that she sued against every newspaper that had run that story. Uh, and she won in virtually all of them. Hearst had to pay her $27,000, but most of the awards were much smaller. After expenses, she actually lost money over the course of her six-year campaign. But Annie Oakley never left the public eye. She used her celebrity to encourage women to be physically fit and taught thousands to shoot. Throughout her career, she appeared at gun clubs, defeating male opponents who doubted her skill, then taught their wives how to shoot. It was her personal crusade. I want to see women rise superior to that old-fashioned terror of firearms. I would like to see every woman know how to handle them as naturally as they know how to handle babies. She was a very early advocate of women's use of firearms for self-defense. She believed that it was thoroughly appropriate for a one woman to have a, a, 
a gun at her bedside. And she also argued that women, especially if they had to be out and about alone, ought to think seriously about carrying firearms for self-protection. This is when she starts sounding like a feminist. You know, I think women should have the right to protect themselves and carry a gun. And she even appears in the Cincinnati newspaper article showing how to hide your gun under an umbrella so no one will know you have it. And then if someone attacks you, you can pull it out. Annie never asked for a cent from her 15,000-plus pupils. She would be repaid, she said, if the women became shooting enthusiasts. They did. One, a proper Bostonian, coolly held a robber at bay until the police came to arrest him. She credited Annie for her success. She felt it was very important for women to be able to conduct themselves without fear in a man's world. And she took steps to teach them. As I have taught over 15,000 women how to shoot, I modestly feel that I have some right to speak with assurance on this subject. Individual for individual, women shoot as well as men. Annie Oakley, 1926. Even in retirement, Oakley walked a fine line between being the powerful, self-sufficient woman and the refined Victorian lady. Annie had once offered to lead a company of 50 lady sharpshooters to fight in World War I. But for the most part, she left politics to men. Annie Oakley didn't even think women should be allowed to vote. Although she did not espouse women's suffrage and she didn't talk about all of the issues that were important to the so-called new women of her time, arguably Annie was living a lot of the values that her feminist sisters were arguing for. Perhaps she didn't see herself as needing feminism to achieve what she had been able to achieve. Then, on November 3, 1926, Annie Oakley died at home in her sleep. She was 66 years old. Eighteen days later, Frank, too, was gone. They were buried beside each other in Greenville, Ohio, not far from the ferry places she roamed as a little girl, with rifle in hand. Will Rogers, who had visited Annie just months before her death, penned a newspaper story about his fellow Western performer, that could have served as her eulogy. She is a greater character than she was a rifle shot. Annie Oakley's name, her lovable traits, her thoughtful consideration of others will live as a mark for any woman to shoot at. There's never been anybody like Annie Oakley. There's never been somebody who had both the power of the gun and this power of a kind of sweetness and purity that makes her safe even though she's holding that gun in her hand. From movies, musicals, and television shows to women's self-defense classes, the legend of Annie Oakley and the life of Phoebe Ann Moses reflect the qualities that best define the American character. And great job as always, Greg. The life of Annie Oakley, again, she died on this day in history in 1926. And it is a classic Western story, and we love those stories. In fact, we featured many of them from Phil Anchich's book as well. And go to our website and catch some of them. And they range from... My goodness, the Levi Strauss story alone, 
uh, is is worth taking a listen to. Go to our Our American Network, and up on the browser, you'll see this day in history. Snap it down and take a listen. And as always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to study all the things that matter in life, from philosophy to education to the arts to the sciences. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and you can find so many of their great education series and classes. The Constitution 101 is about as good as you can get. It's 10 hours. Sit down with the family, and over a summer, over a weekend, over Christmas break, or just when you have some spare time, take a listen. Much better than anything you'll catch on TV. And also the 10-hour course on C.S. Lewis is dazzling. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all that we do. The life of Annie Oakley. This day in history, she died in 1926.